So as we begin today in our series, uh, No, Learning to Say Yes to God from People Who Said No, and uh, we're, we're going to continue this for another week or two. And before in, uh, in September, we're going to launch into a study uh, uh, called Beginnings on the book of Genesis, which is going to be fantastic together. There's so much loaded into the first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, and I'm really looking forward to doing that together. Um, but uh, before we start today, uh, you know, shout out, because we have a few real tables and chairs around, so you lucky people who got here early enough to get a real chair uh, on a table, congratulations. Uh, and I also, uh, a couple years ago, I made it my goal to get the Cubs into every sermon. Uh, I quit doing that because it was really sad, but having won uh, nine out of the last ten games, uh, nine in a row now, uh, we have something to share about because, let's face it, God is the God of the losers, right? And so God loves losers, and that's why I'm a Cubs fan. Okay, having said all that, <laughs> I, I tell you that this morning uh, because I, I always try to bring some humor into this, but i got to be honest with you, this week... Uh, there's a massive emotion shift as we talk about Jezebel, a woman who said no to God. Because when, when you get in, and this week, when I got into the study of who Jezebel was, uh, I, I gotta be honest, emotionally, I, uh, when I was writing my sermon on Tuesday, I was in a pretty dark place when it was all over. Because when, you have to understand, in, in Israel's history, Jezebel is one of the darkest moments in their history. To talk about who Jezebel was, uh, there's a few names that we can reference from our own history that uh, have meaning and, and, and help us figure out just even emotionally. For example, when you hear the name Osama bin Laden, it's difficult not to think about evil when you hear his name because we know what he did and what he stood for. If you think about, uh, many of you know who a Roman emperor Nero was. A guy who regularly torched and burned his own people in cities. He, he put Christians on stakes and burned them alive to light the, the uh, um, amphitheater where he would be at. Uh, I mean, just an evil person. Uh, more recently, we think about Mao Zedong, the Chinese dictator who ruled from 1943 to 1976. He executed five million of his own people. He sent over 10 million Chinese into labor camps because he was determined to make China a military power that rivaled the U.S. and Russia in the Cold War era. Um, he was an evil person. Um, you think about evil people, some of you may not know of a guy named Vlad the Impaler. Uh, he was actually called Vlad Dracula was his name. This guy um, ruled three different times in the 15th century in Eastern Europe. Uh, a lot of, because his name was Brad Dracula, a lot of our myth around who Dracula was comes from this guy. But his nickname was Vlad the Impaler. Because when this guy had anyone he didn't like, his favorite way to execute people was to take a long rod. And he would lay the person down. And he would insert the long rod uh, at, uh, in their buttocks. And then he would take a horse and tie their feet to the horse by ropes. And then he would slowly push the horse forward so that the person would be dragged onto the rod and uh, eventually the rod would poke out their mouth or out their neck. It was one of the most cruel ways to kill someone that has ever been invented. Vlad the Impaler said he would get mad at, at his people if they chose a rod that was too sharp 
because a dull rod took much longer to kill a person. A, a sharp rod killed them too quickly for his own pleasure. You have to understand, he got entertainment from this. He would take pregnant women and impale their babies this way. He took joy from this. And then we think about someone like Adolf Hitler. Uh, there's probably no name in the modern world history that is more synonymous with evil than Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler in his quest for ethnic purity and world domination directly or indirectly caused the death of 50 million people. And I start with this morbid, depressing subject, and you're like, I am so glad I came to church today, Dave. I tell you this because the, the horror that you should feel in hearing those names and what they did is what the name Jezebel meant to the Israelites. This is what the name Jezebel represents to the people of the Bible. She was a representation of everything that was opposed to God she was pure rebellion. She was pure evil. She was working to systematically eliminate the worship of the one true God by murdering his prophets and eliminating anyone who claimed to follow him. Who is Jezebel? Jezebel was a queen of a country called Samaria. This is the northern portion of the nation of Israel. She married into power. She was actually uh, from a region called, of the Sidonians. She married into power by marrying the king of Samaria or Israel. She masterfully pulled this king Ahab's strings. She was the driving force behind King Ahab, the king of Samaria or Israel. She was the driving force behind him. And together they were a force for evil. So much so that in 1 Kings chapter 21, let me read you the summary of Ahab and Jezebel. The writer says, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Jezebel was the driving force behind a man who was more evil than anyone before him. Jezebel didn't merely say no to God. She, was, she wasn't like Jonah who sort of simply refused to say, hey, you know, God, you want me to do this? Well, I'm saying no, I'm going to go the other way. Jezebel didn't simply refuse God. Jezebel worked actively against God, intentionally and aggressively. And this morning as we enter this dark period today to talk about who Jezebel was, I want to ask you, might there be some Jezebel in you? Might there be some Jezebel in me? As we look into the murky pit of evil that is Jezebel, might we find ourselves? Might we be one who not only says no to God, but actively works against him and his kingdom? Jezebel said no to God by actively working against God. And she did this in three ways. Uh, you know, guys know I like three things. And so here's three ways that Jezebel worked against God. She said no by working against him. And the first way is this. She gained power and worked against God. She worked against God by gaining power. Back in chapter 16, what we read there earlier in verse 30, we see Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Here's how Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did it in two ways. First of all, Ahab continued the ways of Jeroboam. 
This is really fascinating. Look at this. 31. Not only he did not only considered it trivial, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. The first way that Ahab did evil was by committing the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. Now, I know you're like, who, who on earth is Jeroboam, son of Nabat? So let me fill in your history for you and, and bring you up to speed about who Jeroboam was, because it's really important. If you remember your Old Testament history, God established his kingdom, and he raised up a king named Saul. God's entire uh, nation of Israel, 12 tribes split out into the land, he appointed a king. They asked for a king, Saul. If you remember, Saul didn't do so well. God replaced him with David, and God said to David, there will always be one of your sons on the throne of Israel. Sure enough, David's son Solomon becomes king, and Solomon builds this beautiful temple to worship God. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing temple to the worship of God. When Solomon dies, Solomon wasn't the greatest parent in the world, but Solomon's son Rehoboam took over. He became king, and Rehoboam really did a bad job of ruling the people, such that there was a civil war. Uh, the country was divided into north and south, and Rehoboam kept rule of Judah and Benjamin in the south, but Jeroboam became king of the north, not a son of David, not supposed to be on the throne of Israel, but Jeroboam became king of the north. Now, Jeroboam immediately had a problem. He said, religion is an important part of our culture and history as a nation, but here I'm, I am ruler, but the place to worship God, this temple that Solomon built, is down in Rehoboam's territory. This is down in Jerusalem, and we have a problem. Jeroboam says, if my people go down to this other country to worship God, I'm going to lose them. They're going to eventually turn on me and say, hey, you know what, we don't want you to rule anymore. So what Jeroboam did is he set up two golden calves conveniently located in his country. And what, Now, if you remember, a golden calf is probably a really bad idea. Uh, Moses experienced that. We talked about that a few weeks ago about Moses grinding down the golden calf and feeding it to the people. And, uh, and like, it just didn't go well for them. But Jeroboam did this. And the reason that Jeroboam did this it's because a golden calf is simply the idea of power. A, a calf in, built out of gold is a symbol of power. And Jeroboam's borrowing this concept from the nations around him. He said, I want to represent our God with a symbol of power. So I'll take a symbol from the other nations and transmit that and say, this is our God now. This represents the one true God, Yahweh. Well, this didn't go well. God said that you're not supposed to make an idol of him. Uh, but Jeroboam simply repurposed the idea. Well, you can imagine this became convenient at first, but confusing. Wait a minute. You want us to take the image that our neighboring nations worship, but now just say that's our God? Fifty years later, we come to Ahab and Jezebel. And by 50 years later, this confusion was translated into the full-blown Baal worship. Full-blown worship of false god. And Ahab didn't even care. By the time Ahab gets around, he's like, hey, all I care about is I'm king and I like this gig. And he passes off the religious um, responsibility of ruling this nation to his wife. And that's why the text says the second big mistake that Ahab made was he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. 
Jezebel was a pagan follower of Baal. She didn't have anything in common with Yahweh. She was from uh, the region of the Sidonians, which was just a neighboring country. And in marrying her, Ahab did two things. He once solidified a trade alliance with a neighboring country. And so that Ahab began to build wealth. We learned that Ahab was a very wealthy king. Um, the second thing that he did, and that marrying Jezebel did, is that it allowed him to have peace with this neighboring. It's like you, you, you could lower your defenses on that border because I married, you know, this girl from that land. And it allowed him to have military peace on that border for him. And so it made perfect political sense. But, but uh, Ahab's big mistake was he gave uh, this idea of worship of God over to his wife and he was being manipulated by her. Look what the text says in verse 32. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. So these golden calves, he's urged on by Jezebel. Jezebel says this, hey Ahab, let's take this golden calf and let's build a altar or a temple around it and then let's stop calling this Yahweh. Let's just full on say what it is. This is Baal. And he also made an Asherah pole. Verse 33. Verse 33. He says, Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. You put every evil king before him that ever existed and Ahab did more than all of them put together because he was driven by this woman, Jezebel, to do this. An Asherah pole, if you just think uh, fertility goddess, it was some kind of pole that basically you gathered around and you had orgies and every kind of profane sexual act committed around this pole in the name of the worship of Baal and Asherah. Think every perverse thing. Jezebel found herself in a position of power and she made it her purpose to work against God. She wanted God's plans and purposes to disappear. Israel was supposed to be a nation that demonstrated God's faithfulness and love to the world. And Jezebel worked to change the very fabric of the nation. She said no to God by actively working against him. She said no to God. and She said, I'm going to put myself in a, po in a position of power to actively work against God. And then the second thing I want you to know today is that she not only gained position, but she used that power. She used that power to promote a false god. And this is where it starts to get really dark. She promoted her god by getting rid of any followers of Yahweh. She didn't only use her influence to promote Baal worship. She tried to exterminate worship of Yahweh, the one true God. Look at uh, chapter 18, if you could flip over with me there, in verse 4. It's almost as a side note, the author writes, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves each. Jezebel is, there is an extermination going on in Israel. Jezebel has taken it upon herself to kill any prophet of the one true God. It's a dark place. I imagine a Gestapo kind of secret police dragging people out and prophets out in the middle of the night and executing them. And there was a single message in this country that Jezebel had established. You want to worship God? That's dangerous. Don't do it. In, in the second half of verse 4, we, realize, we read that Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in caves. 
Obadiah was an official in Ahab's court. And this is so like the Holocaust in many ways. When Jews were being exterminated, Obadiah, an official in the court, secretly hid some of them. So God would have prophets left in the land. He's hiding them in caves. Uh, This would not be the first time uh, that the Jews had been tried to exterminate them. And it wouldn't be the last. I mean, these are dark times. She's exterminating worshipers of God. And then later on in verse 19, the text mentions that 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who sit at Jezebel's table. So Jezebel took these prophets, killed them all off, and said, I'm going to bring in, import my own prophets. 850 of them she brought in and she put them at at her table, which means she was financially supporting them. She was feeding them, she was giving them shelter, and she was saying, hey, together we have a grand vision of creating Israel as a place where Baal is worshipped and the worship of God is eliminated. See, Jezebel said, no, God, I'll use my power against you. And the third way that Jezebel said no to God is simply this. She abused her power to promote herself. She gained power, she used power, and then... I guess we're back to number one, but it should say three. She abused power to promote herself. She abused power to promote herself. We learn this later in chapter 21. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just tell you the story. Um, Ahab one day wants, uh, uh, is looking around, and he sees this vineyard that's fairly close to his palace, and he thought, this would be awesome place. This is really fertile ground. And he says, if I could have this vineyard, I would have a, a place to grow vegetables and, and grapes and whatnot for our palace, and it would be really close, and this would be really convenient. So he approaches the owner of the vineyard, and he says, hey, let me buy this from you. I'll either overpay you for it, or if you want a better piece of land somewhere else, I'll get you a better piece of land than this one. And the, the owner of the land says, no thanks, this land is family land, and I'm not interested in getting rid of it. And so Ahab goes and pouts about it. He's, and Jezebel walks in, this evil woman, and she looks at her husband, and she just mocks him, right? Like, come on, grow a pair. Let's get up, and you are the king. Let's do this. And so she conspires to have the owner of this vineyard killed. She just doesn't even care about the law. She just has him killed. She comes back into her husband. She sort of kicks him, you know. Get up. I kill. I took care of it. Now go take the vineyard for yourself. This is the kind of a woman that Jezebel was. She didn't care about rules. She didn't care about law. She didn't care about anything but herself. She abused power to promote herself. So Jezebel's power has now gone to her head. She's used to getting what she wants. And she shows Ahab at this moment, listen, here's the deal. You may be king, but I'm the one in charge. And everything we see Ahab do, we see driven by Jezebel. All this leads back to our summary verse that we read earlier. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife, driven by her. I can't think of many people who said no to God more clearly than Jezebel. I can't think of many people who actively worked. She didn't just say no. She actively worked to destroy the purpose of God. And then she used that power to promote herself. Now I come back to my question. Might there be some Jezebel in you? Might there be some Jezebel in me? As we look into this murky pit of evil, might we find ourselves and say, I'm not just saying no to God, I'm actively working against him. That's a pretty dark question to ask. 
But I want to give you some hope today. I want to give you some hope. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, the answer to that question is a resounding no. There is no Jezebel in you. If you are in Christ, you cannot, be a you cannot be a child of God, submit to God, and actively plot the downfall of God. You just can't do it. It just doesn't even make any sense. How would you go, okay, the gospel says that I recognize that I'm a bankrupt sinner, that I have nothing to do to please God, but in the cross, God came to me. And when Jesus spread out his arms and died, he did it for me. And when he rose from the dead, he became victorious. He sent us his spirit. I need him. You can't be a child of God who says that and then go, oh yeah, thanks God, now I'm going to bring you down. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Now, you might wander away from God. Your behavior might bring harm to the reputation of Christ. You might grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You might, like Peter, deny Jesus. The enemy might even use your sin to try to do damage to the name of Jesus. But there is no accidental, or specifically, there's no on-purpose plotting of the downfall of God. In Colossians chapter 3, I love this. Paul says, in Christ you died. That's powerful language. In Christ you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll appear with him in glory. You cannot come in repentance to the Almighty God and then turn around and work against him. It just doesn't make any sense. This symbol that Paul is talking about in, in Colossians 3 is the same thing we do when we baptize people. In Colossians chapter 3, we, say we die with Christ. The image here of someone who has come to Christ and said, I submit to you, in, is then meaning your death applies to me. And so when we put this goopy tank up here, this hog trough, and we baptize people, and we put them under the water, we, when they're under the water, it's this picture of I'm dying with Christ and being buried with him. I'm in the grave with Jesus. And then with Jesus, when I come up, I am being raised to new life with him. It's a whole different way. And a follower of Christ who has, has believed this and trusted this truth and has put all their hope in Jesus, you just can't actively work against the one who is saving you. So if you're genuinely a follower of Jesus, if you genuinely believe this, you don't have to freak out about it. Now, in their loud voice, <laughs> the truth is, in a very loud voice, there are forces in this world that are opposed to God. See, while you can't actively work against God if you're his child, the truth is you can be influenced by those who are. And that's the truth here. One way we say no to God is not by actively plotting his downfall, but sometimes we are influenced and don't even realize it by those. And specifically, the loud voice of this world is driven by the evil one, by Satan. Satan is the one driving Jezebel, and Satan is the one driving those in this world whose goal and mission is to bring down the plans of God. And the voice of this is loud sometimes. 
The New Testament tells us to say yes to God by saying no to the evil one. And here, here we come to our title, the goofy title that probably didn't make any sense to you when you showed up. How, how do we say yes to God? We say yes to God by saying no. We say yes by saying no. That doesn't even make any sense. Sure it does. We say yes to God when we say no to the evil one, to the Jezebels of this world. We say yes to God by saying no to the influence of the evil one. And here's how we do that. Three things come to mind today. Another three things. The first one is be aware. Be aware. We have to, friends, open up our eyes and be aware of the work of the evil one around us. Uh, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, And no wonder, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Jeroboam, just like you and me sometimes, is influenced by someone who is exactly plotting against God. We have to be aware of those who would plot against God. There are deceptions all over the place. Satan sends his messages, and we must be aware. There's a gospel out there that Satan works in through an angel of light, the gospel quote-unquote, of health and prosperity. There's a gospel message out there that some people say that says, Jesus died for you so that you can be happy. Jesus died for you so that you can be wealthy. Jesus died for you so you can only experience success in all that you do. Jesus died for you so that you have perfect family and friends and no troubles. That's what this gospel says, and it's just Satan, designed as an angel of light to bring down this purpose. There's the gospel of America. (laughs) It's the gospel of any nationalism of any country that says, our country is really the country of God. And in this country, it's by writing this country that God will only do his work. I mean, there's this confusion here of being the people of God and the people of any country of any of this world. There's the gospel of syncretism. In third world countries, this happens all the time. My daughter, Caitlin, just came back from Africa, and she was telling me that in Africa, it's so hard because the gospel has been confused and meshed in with so many local religions and orthodoxy and all these things that they've sort of invented their own gospel. Satan comes as an angel of light. Uh, in our culture, one of the things we do is samism. <laughs> I call it samism. The gospel, they say the gospel of our world and our culture now says this. All the religions of the world are pretty much the same. They pretty much agree on everything. Just pick one and be a good person and you're all right. It's called the sameness. And that's the angel of light. We have to be aware of this. Individualism is rampant. If you talk to most people in our culture about what they believe about God, it will come down to this word. What I think is true is this. Um, as a culture, we have abandoned this being our foundation. What's more important to me now in our culture, it seems individualism says, not what this says, but what I think. Uh, We have to be aware that this is all tactics of the enemy. We have to be aware of this. Satan is an angel of light, and we have to be aware of his schemes working against God. God's kingdom is here and building And Satan is scared to death because he knows his downfall is inevitable. But he's still working, and we have to be aware of that. A second way that we say yes by saying no is uh, is simply to resist. 1 Peter 5, 9, The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, Peter says. 
standing firm in the faith. I will say yes to God by resisting the forces of those who would influence me against God. It's really fascinating. We have to be so careful about what we put in our head. Um, one, one of the frustrations, the greatest frustrations for me is that as our culture gets busier and busier and busier, what people do is they, they eke out time in their life and, and sort of gathering with the people of God, be it in life groups or Sunday mornings or uh, for coffee or whatever, that sort of gets pushed out. And, and we get to the point where if the average church attendance is 2.3 times a month for our body, we get to the point where we're like, you know, I rarely interact with God's word anymore. How are we supposed to resist the influence of the enemy in our lives if we don't open up the word of God, if we're not interacting with the people of God, if we're not saying Satan is like a roaring lion trying to devour me? We have to make intentional time, and we have to think wisely about this. Anna, my 13-year-old, told me, she gave me permission to share this story today. Uh, we, recently, we've been talking to Anna a lot about the kind of music she listens to. And, uh, and she's, you know, like most 13-year-olds, Anna uh, enjoys music that lifts her spirits and makes her happy. And, and there's some great music out there. And I said, well, here, Anna, let's do this. I said, rather than like just telling you, you need to take all your music away, because I think that's a bad idea. I said, let's just spend some time analyzing what those songs are saying. Let's just do it together. So we sat down, and she spent over the next couple of months listening to her music and thinking about the lyrics, and she came back to me, and these are her words. She goes, so pretty much all the music I listen to is about sex. <laughs> That's a, pretty much everything is. I'm like, yep, pretty much the message you're putting in your head over and over and over is, is about sex or relationships or you name it, and that's what it's about. Revelation 2.20 says this is the Jezebel in our life. Jezebel was so evil that in the Bible, her name sort of became a verb. It became so uh, synonymous with evil that later on in Revelation 2, at the end of the Bible, Jesus says this to the church, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, there wasn't actually a woman in that church named Jezebel. What, what John is doing through the words of Jesus, what Jesus is doing there is saying, listen, you know, this is a metaphor. That's the, whoever this person is, who, whatever his or her name is, this is Jezebel. Jezebel's name became synonymous with people who influence for evil. He says, resist them. One of my whole frustrations with this world and that we live in is that everything in our culture has become sexualized. Um, we like become like sex-crazed animals. And whatever their impulses are, our culture says, hey, whatever your impulses are, you should just assume those impulses are good. And our culture would say then, if those impulses are good, just remove all sexual boundaries whatsoever and we're all good. And I have news for you. The, the call of Christ it, it says something completely different. If we've died with Christ, it says we take all our sexual desires and put them in conformity with the will of God. 
One of the most unfortunate things about uh, what's happening in our country uh, on the whole discussion of gayness and straightness is that we sort of stopped identifying people as people, and we started identifying them with behaviors. And, and one of the most unfortunate things about this whole thing is we stopped saying, well, you're a person, and we started saying, no, you're a behavior. And one of the, the calls of Christ in our life is not to just say those people or those people or those people have to get their behavior in line. But one of the most unfortunate things that's happened in all this is we've not looked at ourselves and said, uh, the thing that I think someone else should do, I should also do. If we're going to say we died with Christ, we stop defining people by a behavior and we start saying those who are called and committed to Christ— Whatever your orientation is, whoever you are that way, you have a call of Christ to conform your desires to Christ. We put them at the feet of the cross. No matter what kind of desire it is, you say, whatever desire I have will be submitted to Christ. Oh, this is so beautiful. This is how we resist the influence of the evil one. So I say, whatever my desires are, the first thing those desires go to is Jesus. And I, the first thing I look at is the Word of God. The first thing I do is submit to Christ. And then all of a sudden we stop putting people in camps and we start saying, yo, you're one of those people or one of those people. And we start to say, as followers of Jesus, we're all in this together. And we're all going to take our desires and we're going to resist the influence of Satan. And we're going to do this the way God wants. And then it's beautiful. It is so beautiful when we do this. It's not just behavior. It's a way of thinking that submits to Christ. We are so much more than our behaviors. As the song Peter said, sang earlier, and the worship team sang this, we're children of God. We get to resist this. And it's beautiful. It's in thinking. Romans 12 says, be renewed. For the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we do this? Well, Anna also said I could keep telling her story. One of the challenges in all of this with Anna was they said, okay, rather than just eliminating all this stuff from your life, let's put some influence of submission to Christ into this. And so, um, you, I may be a terrible parent. I don't know. Uh, but I said, Anna, I'll give you 20 bucks if you memorize James chapter 1. Right, right? 20 bucks. And I'm telling you, that girl went for it. She was like, you know, Dad, she even told me, I don't even need your money. I think this is a great idea. And so she jumped in, and I think, what was it, Anna? Tw 24 hours? 40, she doesn't, she's embarrassed. Don't look at her. Um, about 48 hours into this thing, she had the entire first chapter of James memorized. She put it into her head, and she said, I'm going to choose this to be a positive influence, and I'm going to resist the influence of the evil one. I still gave her 20 bucks. It was the best 20 bucks I ever spent. I can't do that for all of you, by the way. Sorry, that's not an offer. <laughs> Let our minds be in conformity to Christ. That's how we say yes to Christ. And Paul says that we must renew our minds. We say yes to God by resisting the enemy. And the last way to do this is in repentance. All right. Listen to, so we see Ahab's been driven on by Jezebel, the kind of woman that Jezebel is. Listen to what happens to Ahab. Chapter 21. Uh, 
verse 27. God told in verse 25 that there's never been a man who's as evil as Ahab, driven on by Jezebel. Ahab heard this, verse 27 of chapter 21. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. In, in biblical culture, that was the external representation of an internal spirit of repentance. This is what you did to show everyone that internally I'm repented. So he put on, he lay in sackcloth, and he went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. That's the prophet of the Lord. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in this day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Okay, wait a minute. There's never been a man more evil than Ahab because Ahab was driven on by Jezebel. And yet, Ahab puts on some clothes and keeps a spirit of repentance, and God says, I like that. I, time out. Like, this is not fair, right? Like, Ahab needs to go down because he has let genocide happen in his midst. But God says, I'm looking for a repentant spirit. Because the truth is, the gospel says we're all Ahabs. We've all been influenced and we're all sinners. And we need Jesus. And so we repent to him. It blows me away, but there's this confession and turning that's so important. Because God is a God who loves people and he longs to be restored into right relationship with them. And so the last way we resist the influence of those who say no to God and work against him is to repent. Jezebel was set against God. She never repented. Say yes to God by saying no to the enemy. That's the call of repentance. And you can do that today. You can repent today. It's not just merely feeling sorry. That's remorse. Repentance is saying, I feel sorry I confess that, and I turn around, and I go the other direction. You see, Jezebel died unrepentant. And the truth is, she died powerless. Her death is one of the more gruesome deaths in the Bible. Uh, later on, there's a power struggle, and uh, it becomes obvious to Jezebel that she's going down. And she dresses herself up all fancy and nice, and she stands up in her tower. And as she's standing there looking down at someone who's attacking her and trying to take power away from her, her servants hated her so much, they picked her up and they threw her out the tower. And she died a death. And then, as we're told by a prophet of God, uh, she, her body lays there and it's eaten by wild dogs. That's Jezebel's death. As much as she placed herself against God, she died completely powerless. Because the truth is God is sovereign and God is still working his plan and God is still victorious because God wins. And ultimately, the enemies of God are powerless. And in this, we see God's sovereignty. If you can't see God's sovereign sovereignty written across the pages of Scripture, you're missing something massive. Because in this, he chooses to love his people and woo them to himself and work all this to his victory. You see, Jesus, Jesus is coming back. And his kingdom is being established right now. It's here. And one day he's coming back to fully right the wrongs, and he will ultimately defeat the defeated one. God's sovereign plan always points to Jesus. And when we say yes, we submit to that.
We say yes by saying no to the evil one who's set against God. So today, my challenge for you is this. Will you live in a spirit of awareness of the challenges of the evil one? Will you live in a spirit of resistance to his influence? And will you live in constant repentance, renewing yourself with our God? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to say no to the evil one and say yes to you. Help us to live our lives in such a way that you are glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.